So welcome everybody, and I want to welcome our guest today, uh, my friend Mark Sinatra, uh, President and CEO of Aspen HR. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Pat. How are you? Thanks for being with us. It was a slow news day, you know, as we figured we'd work you in, you know? I know. I was like, you know, middle of July. I mean, who, who, I mean, everybody, you know, every successful PO operator is on vacation, right? So um, I, I, I get it. But no, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure to, to connect with you. Well, this is great. And again, you've been such a leader uh, with us. You've been on our board. We've conscripted you for the pack and all sorts of things that we'll get to uh, uh, today. So, yeah, so I always like to start at the beginning. So we're going to talk about uh, Mark Sinatra. And we're going to talk about the PEO, right? The beginnings of both. So uh, I know the answer to this question, but tell us uh, where does Mark Sinatra's story start? Where were you born and where did you start out? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, actually, I was technically I was born in El Paso. Uh, Texas, but then uh, my my parents uh, after six months uh, moved us over to Maryland. So as you know, that's uh, you know grew up in the uh, Maryland D.C. Virginia area, and uh, spent all my childhood uh, upbringing there. You know, went to to high school at uh, the famed uh, Gonzaga College High School right there in the in the city, and uh, uh, then uh, went to uh, went to college up in New York at uh, Fordham after that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, the oldest of, uh, of, of two kids and, um, you know, my parents, uh, my, my both kind of career professionals, you know, my, my dad worked for IBM for gosh, I mean, at least 30 years and, um, retired there. And then, uh, my mom actually, uh, worked for the uh, federal government, uh, for about the same amount of time. And she's actually an immigrant. So she, uh, came over here. Um, uh, she is South Korean. I don't know if we've, talked about that i can't remember yeah, but uh, yeah. so and uh came over here for college and the, kind of that's where where they met so wow and yeah and of course you went to a jesuit high school which of course was a farm team for a jesuit college right your options were limited from a jesuit high school very yes yes i mean even you know i took a visit you know t went up to visit villanova and uh <laughs> you know that's as you know that's yeah you, you, yeah you get the you're shaking the head there and not, not a jesuit school so um but uh yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, I mean, it was a great experience, formidable experience, you know, mm -hmm. as you know, like I haven't been through it yourself and uh, mm -hmm. I still keep in touch with, you know, a lot of, a lot of my good friends from, uh, from those days. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I actually back to your mom for just a second. What branch did she work for? She was initially with the U.S. Forest Service. So, um, you know, got to kind of travel around to some pretty cool national parks uh, as part of that. Um, uh, but then subsequently moved over to the FDA. And uh, uh, her specialty was she was a, a, actually a librarian of, of all wow. things. So it's like, <laughs> you know, old school profession. Uh, but, you know, you think about the troves of like, information and data that those agencies have to manage so you know she she was kind of part of helping to do that so. yeah a trivia question is that the forest service is under the ag department because forestry was the first product for this country the first agricultural product for this country oh that's it i didn't even know that myself shame everything, on me that that's pretty cool everything's it's interior but it's not it's ag. that that's a it's an unusual uh, placement so, but your dad was at IBM when computers would take up like this whole room, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, he started in the late seventies, right? So, um, I mean, you think about like the 
development and even to this day, obviously, which we'll probably get to, but like, you know, development of computers, of technology since the late 70s, early 80s. And, um, you know, his role ultimately kind of evolved into, you know, being more on the project management side for acquisitions and, um, you know, worked on, I think probably the biggest moment that that he worked on was, um, you know, the uh, Lenovo uh, deal, uh, I believe, uh, you know, and yeah. and um, That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. 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 So he was, he was a little part of that, um, you know, on the integration side of things. So yeah. 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 Okay. So back to Fordham. So uh, did you go to grad school right after Fordham or did you work in between? Worked in New York um, after after Fordham for six years uh, before business school, and really my experience uh, started off with a company uh, called Arthur Anderson, which not around anymore, uh, but uh, was a great great uh, training ground. Um, I didn't uh, was not an accountant, so I actually started in a little niche group called uh, their litigation finance group which yeah. performed analysis and provided expert witness testimony in the context of, of lawsuits. So it was, it was a you know, pretty interesting job. And then I also uh, did some uh, corporate finance work. They had a little bit of a corporate finance department that worked on some uh, mergers, acquisitions, capital raising. Mm-hmm. And, and so I did that really up until the uh, firm essentially uh, imploded, right, with the old uh, Enron uh, situation. Um, and then I moved over to an investment bank called Credit Suisse, which sure. you know it's been in the news a lot as well, and uh, I believe they're now owned by, if I recall, uh, just recently UBS, or at least yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's gotten yeah. approved yet. But in any event, um, you know, move over to uh, to the investment uh, bank side, but more on the uh, on the private equity group. So kind of got experience with you know analyzing industries, companies, and um, kind of realized at that point. Um, you know, would love to be uh, closer to the action per se. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know what that looked like, but I just wanted some, some, I guess, greater tangibility of like building something, running something, growing it. Um, so I said, well, I mean, let me, uh, you know, go to business school. Maybe I'll, you know, hopefully kind of figure it out, you know, during that two year journey. So that's, that's what I ended up doing uh, right after that uh, credit suisse. But when you were at Arthur Anderson, when it went under, there was a guy named yep. Joe Berardino was like the president or something. Remember? That's yeah, that's right. Yes, he went to Fairfield with me. Oh wow! <laughs> oh wow! He was like one of our most infamous alums in those days. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, like, no, that's yeah. big. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. That was something we didn't brag about a lot, anyway. But that was uh, right. <laughs> kind of went down with the ship. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. So, uh, where'd you go to business school? I believe I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, took a couple years and and went. Full time uh, down at Wharton in Philadelphia. Um, it was, I mean, it was honestly, it was a transformative, you know, two years for me, uh, many ways. Um, yeah, how, how so? I mean, I, I, I went into it with, I mean, really kind of a just a clear mind, blank slate, right? Trying to just get involved in like just you know classes, activities, you know, build a network, just. Just really try to expand, you know, mm-hmm. my perspective, expand my horizons, and I mean, I really think it it did that. Um, you know, my default thinking, you know, as I kind of evolved, like through my first year of the program, and then did a couple internships the first summer, um, I kind of started to realize that I wanted to be in a position at some point to to run a business. You know, I enjoyed really learning about you know all aspects of of you know 
marketing, strategy, finance, you know, leadership. You know, as an undergrad, I was a liberal arts major, so I didn't really have exposure to, you know, a lot of a lot of those uh, classes at that time. So, you know, for me, you know, being at, at business school, I was like, wow, like this would, you know, be amazing to, to ultimately run a company one day. And, and then like my default line of thinking there was like, well, you know, get involved and get a job, you know, with a fortune, you know, 500 company and, you know, work my way up and, and kind of see how that progression goes. And um, in any event, as I started to kind of do some more research, I I kind of figured out, well, you know, there's an amazing opportunity to, you know, really take the helm and, and, you know, and get involved, you know, as a leader, CEO of a smaller company and, and, and possibly have that, you know, be able to do that much sooner than, you know, kind of doing the whole, you know, kind of corporate America thing for nothing wrong with that. But, um, I'm just a, kind of an inpatient person by nature. So, um, you know, I kind of figured out, well, maybe there's a path for me to, to run a smaller company. And that's ultimately how I got in the PEO industry. I mean, uh, what I ended up doing was, uh, you know, shortly after getting out of business school, was able to, to, you know, raise some money from some investors that enabled me to acquire a small PEO um, and ultimately run that PEO. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's a very bridged version. I'm sure there, you know, can provide any any other detail on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I and I want to drill down a little bit. So the yeah. first question I have, so when when you started at Wharton, you were like 28 or something. You've been out for like six years or something, right? Or thereabouts. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, 27, 28. That's right. What, do you think you would have had the same experience if you had gone straight from college to Wharton? Or was it the years out that made a difference? The years out made a difference for sure. Because you know, I, I feel like, at least for me, like when I was getting out of undergrad, I just had a lot to, uh, lot, a, a lot of opportunity for maturity, you know, to be <laughs> candid. And, um, you know, there's just, you just learn so much that you don't really pick up at all in, in college, right? How to write a professional email, how to have like a professional conversation, um, how to how to act, you know, during a client meeting, like things that, you just have to learn through experience. And so I felt like those, for me, like those six years were extremely valuable and really helped position me to get the most out of the MBA experience, um, you know, for those two years at, at business school afterwards. Yeah. 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 I wonder about that. I went right straight through to law school, but, but I, I, I did because if I had gone out, once I got my first paycheck, I'd never go back. Right. Cause I'd be broke again. I wouldn't want to do yeah. it. Um, yeah. Okay, so so right out of Wharton, you started a PEO. You, you got financing and started a PEO. First of all, that's pretty audacious. Yeah, that's putting it nicely. Uh, you know, there's other words I've used in the, in the to yeah, describe there are. that. I was trying to, you know, that's a family-friendly show. So I was trying to eat yeah, right. that's right. That's the first thing. And the second thing is uh, who on earth would give their money to an untested kid out of Wharton? So how did you talk yeah. a lot of their money? And what an audacious move. Yeah. So talk about that. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, it, it, I mean, I thought the same thing, honestly, you know, at, at the time. And, uh, you know, I felt like for me at that stage in my life, I, I wasn't um, never really consider myself a pure startup, um, you know, founder or, or CEO, but I was very comfortable with, you know, acquisitions, raising money and analyzing industries and all that stuff. Um 
the more research I did, I actually kind of figured out, well, there had already been really, I would say 20 years, right, of examples and case studies of either mid-career professionals or newly minted MBAs who have pursued this path, which I call entrepreneurship through acquisition. Mm -hmm. And it was really through what's more commonly known as like the search fund model where, um, you know, I ended up raising uh, just a little bit of, of, of capital for a two-year period, 24-month budget, where I paid myself a below-market salary. And I spent basically every waking hour of the day during the week to search for a company to buy. And, and so, you know, looked at a lot of different industries besides PEO, right? Um, you know, background screening, digital marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, ultimately kind of stumbled across the PEO industry and thought it was, you know, really, really compelling, you know, for, you know, which, I mean, that's a lot of the reasons why, you know, we all think it's a really interesting and, and successful industry. Do you know, to answer the other part of your question before I go too much further, you know, who, who in their right mind and their, their kind of sober state of mind, you know, would, would, you know, write a check for, you know, a 20, uh, 28, 30 year old to, to do this. Well, it turns out, um, you know, a lot of people, because, you know, and I, again, that was one of the first questions I asked myself before really embarking on this. And, you know, I had, um, I had a few classmates, you know, that supported, uh, I actually had a few professors that, that were supportive, um, and invested and, uh, a lot of like, I would say family offices, high net worth individuals who already had not just experience, but they had successes in investing in a, in a very similar model because the the model has really the search fund model has been popularized you know by Stanford uh, Business School for years um, you know the most well known company that was purchased through this model is a company called Assurion which is public company that you know provides uh, cell phone insurance and that was actually initially a search fund deal that two Stanford MBAs bought right after graduation so that that you're saying search fund yeah what is it yeah search fund is when you have an entrepreneur who wants to buy and then ultimately run a company through acquisition so instead of starting a company they look for a company that has anywhere from i would say five to 30 million in revenue i would say one one to five million in cash flow or ebitda and there's a significant amount of demand from sellers for something like this because what a search fund does is it provides the seller with liquidity and a succession plan, right, in one solution. And, you know, it's for a seller who doesn't, you know, is kind of wary about selling to a competitor that may, uh, you know, synergize part of their workforce, right? Um, it's also for a seller that, is just not a good fit for to sell to private equity, which you know we know that in certain you know in the last ten years private equity has been a significant you know investor and supporter in the PEO space, but honestly there's several you know sellers of PEOs and companies in general that just aren't really a good fit for private equity because you know maybe they're at the retirement age and they want to sell their business they don't want to roll you know twenty percent of their equity and they don't have a succession plan. And so that was a situation, and, and just to kind of give you a concrete example, I mean, 
that was really the situation on kind of how I constructed the staff one acquisition back in late 2008, where the the seller at the time was extremely active, had been very active in APO, by the way, right, as a as a, as a board member and, and through other through other initiatives, but had reached the age where you know late late sixties, and I think you know he wanted to spend more time with his, his wife and family. No clear succession plan, and so you know the this what I would call the search fund solution was very appealing to him, where he could get liquidity and a successor right to to running his business. Mm-hmm. So that that's uh, I don't know if I explained it well, but that's essentially what what the model is. I'm sorry, you set up the search fund, and then get contributions to it. Yeah, so I set up the the the, the search fund, right? It's called a search fund because I'm searching for a company to to buy for um, you know up to a period of 24 months. Okay. And in the, in my case, it actually took me 18 months, right, from the very start to when you know the transaction closed. And I had um, I had about 20 investors. Who you know again you know kind of supported me and and you know invested you know in in my search and so when I found that the opportunity I said well here's you know we need X million of equity mm-hmm. and on a pro rata basis um, you know here's what this means per investor and some inv- a lot of investors committed some investors did not commit and some investors committed more than what their pro rata share was and that is in essence really you know what what the search fund. Um, you know, was in terms of the acquisition and even, you know, and a few of my investors actually served on the board as well, uh, mm-hmm. board of the acquisition. So mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I had never uh, heard of a search fund. That, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I've not been in that world. Uh, interesting thing. But the first company you bought, who was that? Who's the first PEO that you bought out of work? Yeah, so the first PEO was was called uh, Staff One. So oh, was Staff that? One. Okay. Yeah, that's no, right. Was- yeah, that's right. Okay. That was okay. a Staff One deal. That's right. Okay. So that was in late, late 2008, which you know, a uh, very uh, tenuous time, uh, so to speak, to uh, to get into the industry, you know, with, you know, financial crisis, Lehman Brothers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, thankfully, where we're kind of staff one was was based and where a lot of the clients were based, you know, were it's kind of in like the, you know, kind of, I would say Oklahoma, you know, to a lesser degree, Texas at, at the time, um, you know, part, I mean, the economy was still, I think, hit, you know, Fairly hard, but also not as hard, relatively speaking, at that time versus you know other parts of the country. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So uh, how'd that go? So you you took it over and dove into the PEO business, and what was that like? You know, it. Um, I think when when you think about the PEO business at a high level, it's a very straightforward business at a high level, <laughs> right? Yeah. But then. You, you kind of dig into the crux of the operations and you kind of quickly realize, wow, like it's extremely nuanced and there's some, you know, there's some complexity, some complication. And I, I didn't really go into it at all thinking, okay, well, yeah, I mean, this is going to be like, you know, a breezer or whatnot, <laughs> but that said, I'd never run a PEO. Right. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't have, really any experience to form to have an informed perspective on what it was going to be like. And I'll tell you, you know, the experience, I mean, I learned so much and I made a ton of mistakes. (laughs) I mean, it, it was, um, 
you know, experience for the first, I would say three years mm-hmm. where, you know, a lot of, um, made, made a lot of changes to the business. Some of them I think were good changes. Some of them were probably changes that maybe didn't have to be made. Right. Um, but really the goal was to find a way to kind of consistently just grow the company organically. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, changing technology platforms was one of the things, you know, that we undertook moving the company, right? This was like before remote work was widely, I would say widely, but even moderately accepted, right? So it was a real kind of brick and mortar, you know, uh, rooted business. So, you know, moving the company down to to Dallas, um, you Where know, was, was extremely disruptive. The company was founded and based in a town in southern Oklahoma called, yes. uh, Dur- yeah. Dur- so it was about like it's called Durant, Oklahoma. So it was about like I would say an hour and a half to um, maybe like two hours, you know, north of of Dallas. Okay. You know, I found that we were having some challenges, like really selling into like the DFW, you know, uh, area having like not being based, you know, in Dallas. And that was like part of the shtick, right? I mean, like a lot of like, you know, boutique PEOs, right. Kind of sell and serve local. And, you know, like that's, that's part of like the appeal, right. To, to a lot of uh, potential clients. So I felt like, you know, we had to kind of move the company to, to really kind of credibly, you know, sell into the Dallas area, but it was extremely involved, like, disruptive move. I mean, I can tell you like at the time the job market, um, you know, unemployment rate was still pretty high. So like, I remember like putting a, you know, an ad out on, um, one of the job boards, you know, to hire receptionists. And I literally like five hours later, we had like 250 resumes. I mean, it was just, it was, it was insane time. Great market, I guess, to hire in, but, um, it was, uh, it was really involved. And then of course, like, you know, you hire folks that, you know, didn't want to make the move. Right. So you're, you're replacing positions. And I can tell you for sure, like, I mean, I didn't bat close to a thousand in terms of, you know, having, you know, being accurate in terms of like finding the right people for the right role. So then you rehire for those roles. And so honestly, I didn't really feel like I had a firm footing and grounding into the industry and, and really like growing, you know, staff one well into the, I mean, I would say it would, it was at least three years, maybe even four years. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a significant grind of in the early days really kind of get us to a point when we could, you know, kind of, again, kind of credibly sell and serve, you know, into the Dallas market and into surrounding areas in Texas as well. So. What? How many worksite employees did you have when you bought it? So it was pretty pretty small. I mean, I, I think like at our at our low point, we were right around like nineteen hundred uh, WSCs, and that was after you know we had a, a large client that in the early innings like that that uh, had terminated um, you know services. So that brought us down to nineteen hundred, and then when we when we sold it, we were right around 12,000. So, um, you know, we had, you? well, we, we ended up, um, you know, selling it in 2017. But so that was it, organic. That was an acquisition. 
It was about 80 to 85% organic. We did a couple of small um, kind of what I would call like tuck-in acquisitions, books of business. Mm-hmm. So okay. we, I would say like from a WSE perspective, do the math here. We had about like, I would say 1,500 mm-hmm. uh, WSEs that collectively came from, you know, acquisitions on um, the rest of it was organic growth. Okay. So how do you grow organically? Right? Everybody's sort of grappling with that these days. Like, how'd you do it? That That's, you know, incredible growth, right? It's like 10X growth. Really. Yeah. I mean, like, well, I think um, one of the kind of the fallacies I had, like getting into the industry, trying to answer that question was thinking by default, okay, well, we're organically hire some salespeople and like, well, you know, it all starts with, in, in particularly in this industry, it all starts with client retention. Mm-hmm. You've got to have client retention well into the 90s. Mm-hmm. And that's easier said than done. I mean, listen, like it's a competitive industry, as we all know. And um, by the way, you know, and thankful to, in huge part to you and your team for you know, when you look at the penetration rate of PEOs from when I got in the industry yeah. to where it is now, that's significant. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, that's made, um, you know, the work that you guys have done in APO has been significantly positive impact to PEOs that want to grow organically. But it all starts with the client retention, right? Because if you don't, if you don't have the client retention in the in the nineties, and these, like I said, you know, mid nineties at least, ideally. Mm-hmm. Then, what's going to happen is, you know, if it's in the eighties, and and you know, even certainly below that, but like if it's in the eighties, you know, you're just going to be replacing business, yeah. right? Yeah. And we all know, like, you know, when you when you bring on a client, it's a lot of work involved in that, and there's various studies that'll show, like. Well, you know, when does a PEO really like make money, you know, off of like a, a new client? And you'll see like the amount of effort like year one into implementing that client and then, you know, getting them off the right foot, like handbooks, job descriptions, you know, whatever else they need from a service perspective. It's very, very involved year one. So a lot of folks will tell you, well, you know, we're not really even like, quote unquote, you know, making money off a client until like into year two, yeah. right? Yeah. But if you're churning, you know, all these clients and then, you know, having to replace that business, what happens is your operation becomes extremely, um, you know, highly utilized. And and so, you know, there's just a lot of work put in by the operation service personnel just to stay flat. Right. And it's that it's the proverbial like kind of hamster wheel situ- yeah, yeah. Uh, scenario. And you just can't have that. That's why. Like it all, like I said, I mean, I know I'm repeating myself, but it all starts with the client retention as well, because then that positively impacts employee morale, right? At all levels. And when you think about the sales role, you're selling an intangible B2B service. Yes, I know, like, you know, health insurance is a component, you know, the technology is a component, but ultimately, like, what kind of holds it all together is the, the intangible service component client satisfaction, the references, client retention, et cetera, et cetera. So the more that the sales reps believe in the value and believe in the service model that they're selling, it doesn't take a genius to figure out. I mean, the more effective they're going to be at selling, right? 
So it's all like the cycle of success with, you know, starting with investing in your employees and hiring the right people for the right roles so that you're able to get client retention at the level you need it to be. And then that enables, you know, the company then to achieve, you know, double digit organic growth because, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have, okay, if you have client retention in the mid nineties and then, you know, if we're in a decent economic environment, clients are expanding. So they're hiring, you know, WSEs on a net basis. And that's what, you know, we certainly have seen in recent years at, at uh, you know, my current PEO. And then, you know, you're, so you're basically kind of like stable or maybe even increasing without even having any sales. And then you top on, top off, you know, um, sales on top of that, then that results in sustained double digit, you know, organic growth. So happy to dive into any, any of that right there. No, that's great. And I know just think about the, the you know, point about client retention, uh, you said hamster wheel. I was thinking about treading water, right? Because you're just treading yeah. water. You're going out the back door as fast as they're coming in the front door. You're, you're getting, getting nowhere. Okay. But, exactly. but how did you increase that number? Was it through clients growing or because you started down the road toward, I thought the solution was just hiring a bunch of salespeople. So it sounds like you thought better of that. But how did you expand? I think you got to figure out the most important thing is you have to figure out your sandbox, right? So in other words, who, who is your ideal client and what is their buyer persona, right? Like to identify their attributes to the point where it allows you to then acutely target them from a marketing and from a sales perspective. Um, so in you know our particular case, we started to really get some better traction on the sales side once we kind of figured out that, well, you know, we've got two potential buyers, right? There are folks who are based, you know, in Texas or within a some sort of like 50 mile radius of where we have a physical office or service team and they value that they want a locally you know locally based service provider mm-hmm. and and we used to call them like uh what i would call like hr neophytes mm-hmm. where they valued hr but they were at the point where it did not make any sense to build an in-house hr department mm-hmm. so notice what i just said there like i didn't say anything about health insurance right didn't say anything about technology and I kind of realized, well, you know, because at the time um, we actually did not have, I mean, well, at points, or certain points we did, but really most of our growth came when we didn't have a master medical plan. So we had to figure out, well, okay, it, we we really need, you know, the or the most impact we can make on a, on a client, so, right, is when a client is, you know, valuing boutique service and you know, HR delivery. And, and so once we started to kind of figure that out, that enabled us then to be much more targeted and also know when a prospect isn't a good fit for us as well. That's the other thing too. Um, the second group of, I would say our sandbox would be, and it's kind of similar to the first, but the first group is really for groups that have never used a PEO. The second group is what I would call like just dis- disenfranchised clients of 
of of PEOs, primarily just due to um, service. Maybe you know they just had some you know kind of service issues, and we're just looking for a move, more kind of boutiquey, hands-on, you know, white glove service provider. So you know, it's definitely like I mean, you can see like some similarities and in, in the overlap, but we really wanted more of a blue ocean approach and like focus on that first group. Um, you know, groups that have never used, you know, a PEO before. So then, you know, we kind of weave that into our marketing and sales strategy. So on the marketing side, um, you know, I, this is one of the the big mistakes I made initially. I was like, well, like I said, in the beginning of this grow sales, hire salespeople. Well, I mean, this is a complex, you know, B2B sale. And the world of B2B sales has become much more specialized in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And, you know, if you think, you know, you can hire a sales rep to, you know, effectively prospect close deals can certainly happen, but, you know, they're, they're kind of like unicorns, right? I mean, it's not done, done. It's not a very common uh, thing to, to find out there. So, we said, you know, we got to invest a lot more in marketing, particularly digital marketing, mm-hmm. and figure out, well, you know, how do we, you know, really with a fairly limited budget, you know, kind of optimize our results for that. You know, tried kind of dipping my toe in the water as it relates to, you know, Google Ads, SEM. Yeah. You know, it's really, you got to go big or go home in that, right? Um so I was like, okay, let's scrap that. Let's kind of figure out, like, from an SEO perspective, you know, how can we really optimize and really target, you know, the key audience we want to target? And so instead of trying to optimize, listen, if you try to optimize for, you know, PEO, right, as an example, like, that's tough. That's tough. I mean, there's there's a lot of companies with much larger budgets yeah. with a much earlier lead start on you. So... Well, it's like, well, maybe um, you know, there's some other variation of search strings that, you know, our again, our buyer, our ideal customer would search for. I don't know, like PEO Dallas, PEO Texas, you know, as examples. And so we worked really hard to like figure out, okay, well, here are the the, the search strings that we really need to optimize for, and then just worked really hard from a technical SEO perspective, from a content perspective. To, to focus on that. And then kind of build it in too, like in terms of our, our talk tracks on the sales side on yeah. uh, how we presented our proposal, you know, the types of questions we asked, things like that. Um, and so it really in kind of in a, in a nutshell, I mean, that's really kind of, you know, what I think led to, you know, the growth, but also, I mean, ultimately, as you know, this is a people business. So just by really being able to um, do our best to hire the right person, in the right role and make sure that they were doing the right things in the right way. That was the key, the key formula. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And it sounds like that, but word your mouth. It sounds like you guys made the decision early on not to be all things to all people. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Right. And I, and I, um, and I, but I can understand why it's a tempting strategy right i mean like it's 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 really hard to and i still have a hard time doing it but i mean it's really hard to say you know no to to business but at some point and and this kind of will dovetail maybe um to to what i'm currently doing but like at some point um you know i do think like you know to have some sort of a focus whether that's 
on, um, you know, kind of a qualitative focus on like that your ideal customer, or maybe a vertical focus on, you know, here are the industries, you know, we need to focus on it enables you then to really tailor and customize your product offering, your service offering, your approach, your marketing strategy. I mean, listen, like it, we just have, you know, small to medium sized POs have limited resources. And so you can only do so much as it relates to your time and your capital. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, PEOs and, and how they've been able to craft their own competitive advantage, well, you can invest your capital into um, software. You can invest your capital on the insurance side and maybe do some, whether it's a captive or some sort of, you know, partially self-insurance there. Um, you can invest your capital solely in just, you know, organic and channel partner growth. Um, you know, you can invest your capital, do add-on acquisitions. But I really think it's very hard to do all four. Um, you know, you're going to need, uh, you know, some some big pockets there and, and uh, you know, to do that. I really think for a, a PEO to credibly be successful, you got to choose two of those four and do them really well yep. and optimize your capital investment accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, okay, so you were at Staff One for how long was the run at Staff One for you? Eight? About about nine years. Nine years. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, tell me about how that ended. Then what? Then what happened? <laughs> you know, the 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 board and I kind of got together. You know, in 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 early 2017, and we're like, you know, are we uh, just you know kind of a, a bubble that we're in? Or is there going to be a recession soon? Of course, you know, like, you know, turned out to be. Uh, way too early of a call on that right i mean that was an extended uh extended bull bull market we were in but you know listen it's hard to time these things and we said you know um let's gonna see uh see what's out there um you know in terms of strategic alternatives and so you know we went through a process and 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 kind of scoured the market um across you know financial buyers and private equity firms and and uh competitors as well and you know, we ultimately uh, decided to to partner up with uh, you know the wonderful people at uh, Oasis Outsourcing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at the time, led by Mark Pearlberg, who um, I think he was a guest on perhaps. Yeah, he was yeah. one of the early ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was just I think fantastic how it all kind of came together and worked out. Um, you know, I, I really what stood out to me was you know, Mark and his team and, and kind of like this got along really well. And like this, their approach to, to, you know, acquisitions post-close um, there's a lot of different approaches out there. And I, I felt like, um, you know, their approach really resonated and would be the most successful for, for my team. And uh, so, yeah, so that's what we ended up uh, doing. Yeah. What was it about his approach? Well, I think, listen, there's, there's a lot of different views on this, and I think it really depends on the particulars of the transaction, really. But um, their view was, listen, let's integrate what makes sense, right? Like the kind of proverbial kind of low-hanging fruit, but but let's integrate what wouldn't necessarily be disruptive or client-facing, you know, 
right? Yeah. Because they knew that, listen, the name of the game, like I said, is, you know, client satisfaction, client retention. And, you know, their goal was to maximize that post-close. And so, you know, you talk about like, you know, back office functions, like, you know, merging insurance plans, you know, merging the compliance area, finance and accounting, you know, technology. Again, none of those decisions are, by the way, are, are taken lightly, but, you know, it's all about like the the cost benefit and again, you know, client impact ultimately. And what I really appreciated was, you know, those, those the, the, the people and the processes that were client facing, let's, you know, leave those alone for the, for the time being. Right. And, and, and so I really felt like it was like the best of both worlds where we were kind of getting the advantage, right. Of the resources and scale that Oasis brought to bear. But at the same time, we were still kind of doing our thing, right. Even like retaining the local brand for, for some time. And, you know, I ultimately, I started to gain very quickly, a very high level of trust in, in, in Oasis because, they ultimately, and this is kind of super simple, but like they ultimately just delivered on what they said they were going to do, right? And they did it within the time frame they promised, and and uh, so to me, like that was extremely reassuring. And you know, I thought it worked out really well, even to the point where, you know, for a brief time, um, you know, I had taken a new role with with Oasis, and um, um, you know, they were going to regionalize their business because they had done, you know, a bunch of deals and across the country. Um, and so they wanted to, I would think, kind of better organize and manage that. And so, you know, I was spearheading an initiative to essentially run the Western region, you know, of the country for them. And, you know, for two years um, had, uh, you know, moved uh, from Dallas and lived in uh, San Diego. So, you know, I, Somebody had to volunteer for that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty tough duty. I, it, it was, it was a tough, you know, duty calls, I guess, but, um, um, but it was a great experience, you know, um, and that really kind of led up to, uh, when they sold, you know, to, to paychecks. And I said at that time, you know, it, it had been kind of a long run and, and, uh, you know, running these, uh, PEOs is very involved and, and, uh, you know, it was intense, uh, for sure. And I just said, you yeah, know, let me just take a little bit of, of time off. So that, that kind of led me to re- really the 2019 period. Yep. Yep. So and somewhere along the line, you got married and had a baby. So that all happened in that period, I think. Somewhere. Right around. Yeah. 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 So um, <laughs> that all yeah. happened together. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So yeah. Tell me about Aspen. The beginning, you know, the beginning of it, you know, and, and how that got started. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting because um, wasn't, uh, necessarily looking to get back in the industry per se, you know, it's always good to like, just try some other stuff out. Um, you know, a short period of time, I was like a fractional CEO for a, a FinTech company, which was like a, a good experience, you know, just something different. Um, but you know, as, as we all know, right. I mean, um, once you're in, it's, it's, it's hard to really get, get out. Right. And they just bring you back in. And, uh, so got introduced to Aspen. I didn't, didn't start Aspen, right? I think when I was introduced to, to Aspen, you know, they had been in business for that time, about two, two and a half years. Um, but, you know, really got like very uh, intrigued with, you know, Aspen's uh, vision, focus, the business model, the service model um, really kind of started um, as a, I guess, an offshoot from a fund administration firm. 
Hmm. So, so fund administration, right? They do all like the the back office uh, reporting, fund accounting for alternative investment funds. So, think of like private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, all that stuff. And um, you know, they were just really, I think, looking for a kind of a safe haven, so to speak, to refer business to because they would get asked all the time. Well, you know, who should we use for payroll? benefits hr and you know they didn't really it was always like kind of like a a mix of you know referrals and you know to other companies and um you know i think they really wanted they they kind of saw an opportunity to potentially say well you know maybe there's a way or maybe we should you know kind of start one of these companies so aspen actually started as an aso in an insurance agency um and then when i came on board in October of 2020, which it'll be three years, you know, this October, um, you know, we started the PEO about, I would say very shortly, I mean, like three months after that, mm-hmm. right? Because really the goal was to, you know, start the PEO unit and have that really be the core mm-hmm. driver of our company, you know, going forward. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But going back, like what, again, what appealed to me about Aspen was the, the um you know the vertical focus of the company um you know was intrigued with selling and serving into what i would call like the high wage white collar space um and having like a white glove service model that was was kind of part of that um i also was intrigued with being able to like have you know some of the world's you know like kind of leading investors right as as clients and then kind of having a, what I would call like a Trojan horse strategy, so to speak. And like basically, um, you know, getting referred in or selling into their portfolio companies, which I really saw as like a, you know, potentially a, a big driver, right. Of, of what our growth is going to be. Um, and then ultimately, you know, really just enjoyed and appreciated and was impressed with the team. Um, you know, that was in place and, um, you know, kind of just saw myself working really well there. So, yeah. you know, made, made an investment in the firm and, and, uh, you know, like I said, it would be about three years this October. And as part of that, you know, joined us as a CEO and it's been a great experience. You know, you know, really have, uh, have enjoyed it so far. So that's still the mock. You guys are still uh, in a vertical mock is what you're doing, right? Yeah, it's still the model. So it's interesting. It's like, obviously, you know, same industry as what I've been operating in before, but very different way to approach it, right? So uh, in a number of ways versus, you know, we've got uh, just over 50 or so uh, team members, but we're all we're all remote. Mm. And it was actually like that even before, you know, before I came on board, before COVID. I, mean, I remember talking to, you know, the board chair when we were trying to get to know each other. I was like, well, you know, where's the role base? He's like, well, where do you want it to be based? I was like, okay, well, that's, I, I like that. And that's interesting. Now I will say not to get off on a tangent, but, um, you know, managing, leading a remote company, very different than what I was used to. Um, so, you know, there's definitely pros and cons associated with that, but going back to your question. Um, yeah, that's still our focus is focusing on, you know, I would say high wage, white collar segments, Predominantly, the investment management slash financial services industry, the technology space, life sciences, 
and then professional services. I mean, those are really those four verticals comprise the majority of our business. Of course, you know, we've got other clients as well, particularly when you talk about, you know, private equity and in trying to, you know, serve, you know, private equity portfolio companies. Those yeah. tend to be in any industry, right? I mean, yeah. um, so you know, there's 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 certainly some flexibility there. But from a go-to-market perspective, that's really, you know, the majority of our business. So we are more of a what I would call like a, you know, like I said, vertically focused PEO provider, but national in scope. Whereas like the last company was more horizontal, right? In terms of like we had companies in all different types of industries. Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, our clients were based, you know, in Texas and like a couple of surrounding states. So very yeah. different uh, model there. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, as you alluded to, and I talked to some folks uh, recently uh, at a PE firm invested in a PEO that were also, uh, you know, bringing in their other acquisitions uh, as PEO clients, right? It's like you were saying, you know, yes. these folks, these companies, you know, if they start to bring their acquisitions in as clients, that's that's a second benefit to this whole thing. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. You just have to be ready for, you know, what I would call like the uh, uncontrollable uh, ret- client retention because, you know, those companies are going to sell at some point, right? But, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that can be a huge, huge lever of, of growth. And so... Um, you know, we'll see, you know, that's kind of what, uh, what the vision is here. So I always ask uh, people what their better mousetrap is, but I guess you would say that Aspen's better mousetrap is that you're, you know, you're vertically focused and you're, you've got expertise in their space, I guess. Right. Yeah. And, and, and listen, I mean, like some, some folks will say, okay, well, isn't that more of a marketing thing? And I mean, listen, like it's obviously, it's an important part, right. Of our marketing and, and sales strategy, but it really like, it does play into how we construct our product stack and our service delivery. So, for example, like, you know, there are certain types of, you know, employee benefit plans that really appeal to our client base. Well, if we didn't have that focus, we wouldn't have access to those types of plans, right? And we would offer more of a, um, uh, you know, kind of standard or generic, you know, set of benefit plans that wouldn't necessarily appeal to our target client base. Um, you know, we understand also that, you know, there can be some uh, significant uh, bonuses paid at times. And, you know, how do we kind of handle that? And what kind of, a, you know, uh, uh, advice can we give in terms of, you know, from a from a tax perspective, you know, as it relates to, to that? Um, you know, we know that, you know, a lot of our clients will have K-1s, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do we address that, you know, from a, um, you know, kind of a uh, payroll processing or, you know, benefits perspective. So all those things are like unique things to that particular sector um, that, you know, we're very comfortable addressing from a service perspective. From a portfolio company perspective, you know, these companies are, they're built to grow, right? And so it's very common for them to do add-on acquisitions. Well, listen, we understand that, you know, what kind of, I'm partially because of my background in acquisitions, like, well, an acquisition is not just, you know, putting a bunch of new hires, you know, in the system. Like it it is much, much more involved. You got to figure out if it's going to be an asset deal, stock deal. You got to know where those employees are based. You got to take a look at, you know, their employee handbook, you know, and, and all, I mean, there's, it's, it's really full on. So we understand kind of how to treat and how to basically manage you know, our clients that are have an add-on acquisition yeah, as yeah. part of their growth valuation strategy. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. And it's interesting insight. The uh, Yeah, so I ask everybody, sort of flip sides of the same coin, what do you... What is the outlook for this industry? Not not for Aspen, but writ large. What's the outlook for the industry? And then the flip side, what are the headwinds? I mean, I think the outlook continues to, obviously, I'm biased, but I do think the outlook continues to be extremely bright for, for the industry. I mean, let's face it, right? There's always going to be complexity and nuance and changes within the HR and the employee benefits and payroll landscape. That's just the truth of it. And, um, you know, what we've seen in recent years with, you know, remote work and the increased, what I would call localization and regionalization of HR laws. That's, listen, I mean, like, you can be an employer, like, you know, we had, and we had clients like this, they had like 10 employees in one state, and like, you know, the next month they had 10 employees in 10 states. Like, that's that's a significant burden. I just, yeah, I do think there's some reversion back to an office for for sure, whether it's full time or or hybrid. But you know, a lot of our you know clients that are kind of you know like white collar, I mean, they're still trying to find the best talent they can. Yeah, and yeah. being remote or being flexible enables them to do that. So I mean, I I, I think there's there's certainly continued tailwind. Mm-hmm. Um, for the PEO solution, yep. because the PEO solution, obviously, I believe is the best solution for a small, medium-sized company to ensure that they're compliant with HR regulations to provide cost-effective, high-quality employee benefits as well. And then kind of equipping yourself with the guidance expertise that a service team coupled with technology can can offer. I think in terms of the headwinds, um, you know, and, and that's another area where and I'm not just saying this because, you know, you're allowing me to be on the podcast, but I mean, <laughs> you, got, you guys have honestly, you know, Napio have done phenomenal job, you know, from a advocacy perspective. There's always the, what I would call the stroke of the pen risk, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether that's at the federal level or the state level. And so we've got to be, we've got to be just play offense really and continue to do that. And that's where the pack, um, that's kind of a little bit of a plug and, and, uh, you know, Tom, Tom, uh, just send me that Venmo later, but uh, no, the pack is, uh, is no, it honestly is, is so important, right. To continue to build relationships with, with, uh, you know, meaningful, uh, and, you know, folks, uh, you know, in all States, uh, um, you know, that can help us, right. Support the industry. So there's a truck of the pen risk that you always got to kind of be, be mindful of, um, you know, on the technology side, you know what the technology area continues to, needs to continue to innovate right that is one of the if you look at like you know porter's five forces right like the old kind of harvard business school you know kind of framework the supplier concentration in the peo industry has always been one of those like okay like there's just not a lot of providers because you know i mean it, it historically it was kind of a small industry now it's i mean it continues to grow though it continues to grow significantly so you know, we need to make sure that our partners in all aspects, not just technology, but in all areas, continue to support the industry and continue to innovate and are providing, you know, value, right, to our end client. Um, I mean, those are a couple of the, the I would say, risks slash, you know, kind of headwinds that, 
you know, uh, that just off the top of my head that, you know, are, are that we're being mindful of. I wondered also, is it because you grew up in the D.C. area, you've always been such a supporter of the pack. You always intuitively got why that was important to develop friends and to grow the pack. You've always been a big financial supporter of the pack and a big evangelist for the pack. So maybe it was just growing up here that got that in your DNA, but I really do appreciate it. And it, yeah, when we were, when that pack was pretty lonesome and pretty lean, uh, you were always there supporting us and it, it's made a difference. It really has. We're, we're making more friends. Oh yeah. I mean, the progress has been awesome. I mean, and like, we, like I said, you guys, Tom, and then just you know, support from other leaders in the industry. It's been it's been huge, and so it's been it's been fun to see. And then, um, you know, definitely looking forward to getting back more. I would say more actively involved. You know, starting in the near future. Now that um, you, can run, you can run, but you can't hide. We know where to find you. So that's right. That's right. Anyway, okay. So two final questions. One is, what's your advice to people new to the industry. So uh, young Mark Sinatra who's getting out of Wharton says, hey, what should I do? What's, what's your advice to them? I think that's what it is. It's what you just said. Like, don't be scared about asking for advice. Mm-hmm. And if I, that was one of the, I would say, and I don't know if this is your other question, but that was one of the biggest mistakes I made. Mm-hmm. I think get, first getting into the industry was, you know, it just was just so focused and entrenched, you know, on the business and not taking a step back. Right. Mm -hmm. And like just saying, Hey, like, you know, let me get some advice on X, Y, Z, or, you know, what does, you know, what does so-and-so do for this? Because I think part of the beauty and part of their driver of success in this industry is the collaborative collegial nature. Right. I mean, it's a very fragmented business when you look at it. I mean, like geographically. So like there are folks, even like within, you know, the state of Texas, that I have very good friends that are fellow PEO operators. And I can probably count on one hand the number of times like we've bumped into each other in the market, right? So like folks in general, I think, are very willing to help if they're called upon. They're not going to know if you don't call them, right? So that's that's what I would say is like just really um be comfortable and be confident and just reaching out to, to other operators and for your advice on things yeah it's great advice and it's funny mark so many people mention how collaborative this industry is right and it, it just it just it's been unbelievable so no the last question not about mistakes because i was going to talk about this the mistakes you made but we, you know we've only got another couple hours and you'd never be able to fit them all in so that's <laughs> <laughs> that's we only got two hours left that's it's exactly um okay no the yeah. last uh question is the grabber what's something we don't know about you so what is something that you know you've been in this industry a while and you've got a lot of folks a lot of friends in this industry what's something we don't know about you um that is a very good question. I, mean, I think um, leave any any criminal uh, charges aside, but any of that stuff, or like you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, what's I, a, yeah, what's what's something we don't know? I think um, you know, I I don't know. I'm kind of building on the last question a little bit, like it's just kind of fresh in my mind. I mean, I, um, you know, I know it's like common right you go to like the you know the the conferences the meetings and you know i mean everybody kind of puts on like you know whether it's natural or or not but like you know everybody's like doing well everybody's confident um 
But, you know, I'm here to tell you, like, from my experience, you know, there, there were some definite, very low points, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my journey. And I, I kind of harken back to like the 2010, yeah, right around like 20, 2010, like early 2011. I mean, it was just kind of like a perfect storm, you know, to be honest, where, you know, we, we transitioned from, you know, a master medical plan to client level plans, which that is a very involved transition. As part of that, you know, we lost a large client. Personally speaking, wasn't doing well at all. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, I, I was going through a divorce at that time. Um, very poor work-life balance that was partly led to that. So how'd you get through? What's your advice to somebody when you're going through something like that? I mean, the first thing is you got to get yourself right personally. And it it all, like, if you're not right personally, it's going to have, like, just an adverse impact on the business. And fortunately, you know, I'm a kind of a slow learner, right? So, I mean, ultimately, I figured that out. But, like, um, it was like, you know, the harder I tried in the business, at times, like, the worse off I was personally. And it started having, like, this not a good impact on, on the business. And so I kind of had to get, I mean, I had to get, eat healthy, get in shape, like feel good about myself mm-hmm. mentally and physically. And for me, like those two are kind of intertwined in a lot of ways. So, I mean, I just had to get myself correct, you know, from, from a personal perspective. And when I felt like, I don't know, I don't, I don't, know if there's a coincidence there but like i I'm just kind of looking back like when i was going in the right direction personally the business was going in a much better direction so yeah, isn't that funny right one of my favorite quotes i've probably said on here before is that failure is not the falling down it's the staying down you know and it's just yeah kind of yeah through that stuff and and again it kind of goes to the last question the kind of advice to you know new people to the industry is you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to, but in those downs, you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Right. Yes. You're you're living proof. uh, You come out the other side. (laughs) Yeah. And it's tough. Like in those times, like it's, you gotta have the, you gotta have the belief Mm -hmm. that you will come out on the other side. And because if you don't have that, it's not going to get you through those tough times. Yeah. 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 Well, this is great, pal. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the time today. And, and again, you've been uh, such pal through your years in the industry and such a supporter of the pack, a huge supporter of our marketing efforts. I mean, you have always been like a stalwart of like, go, 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 like do more, do more, do more. You know, that's near and dear to my heart, you know, and you've always been a big supporter of that, uh, you know, a, a big um uh, I guess I, I would say um, you've lent your intellectual wattage to that to say, here's where I think you need to go on marketing communications. Here's some studies that you need to do. Here's some data that we need. Right. And that's just been solid gold for us to hear from people on the front lines, you know, because I don't want to be wasting my time cranking out stuff that people can't use, you know. Um, so you've been great through all that stuff. So I, I really do appreciate it. It's, it's, it's been great. So. Oh, no, thank you. And likewise, too. I mean, it's uh, it's been so much fun like working with you and and your team and like i said i mean 
you know, being able to, uh, what is the penetration rate? I mean, it's like tripled, right? At least. I mean, but it's awareness, significant. Awareness is up 40 points, right? In the last. Yeah. Year. So it's just, and you know, uh, uptake follows uh, awareness. The more awareness people are, right? And the industry is quadrupled in size. So uh, uh, it's huge. So it's, it's unbelievable. Well, yeah. You guys have done a phenomenal job. I had nothing to do with it, but I took credit for it. That's what's really important. There you go. <laughs> I like it. I'm in Washington, like it. after all, right? You learn to take credit. That's right. That's so, okay. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Mark Sinatra, CEO of uh, Aspen HR. Thank you, pal, for the time today. Really appreciate you being with us. Uh, and good luck to you and, uh, and the company. And I'll be seeing you hopefully at the conference in October, if not before. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate it. 